0: You're listening to the Coms Risk Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode twenty-nine of the Comms Risk Podcast. I'm Eric Priestkounds. Every quarter this podcast takes a deep dive into the challenges faced by professionals working in business assurance and Risk Management in the Communications Sector. Today we'll do that by sharing a recording of Lee Scargill's presentation at the 2017 London Conference of the Risk and Assurance Group. Lee is a Senior Risk Executive, most recently working for Uridu Group. He is also a member of the Risk and Assurance Group's Steering Committee, leading the argument for greater investment in telco risk management. Lee's talk was based on a survey of 12 UK telcos after he sent each of them a questionnaire and reviewed their annual reports, looking for information about the way they do enterprise risk management and how they govern their risks in general. But instead of listening to me, let's hear what Lee had to say.
1: Uh, good afternoon, everybody uh, first of all i 'd like to thank you all for coming. I actually had a look at the attendee register and it 's just amazing to see how many people have actually traveled from all over the world to come today uh, i'd also like to thank BT in particular Benice and her team uh, for hosting this event and also a thank you to our sponsors who provide the funding uh, to to make this possible to put on these fantastic events so uh, my presentation today is it's a survey of enterprise risk management practices across the UK industry. Uh, a quick bio about myself. Uh, my name is Lee Scargill. I've worked in telcos now for about 20 years. The majority of which has been in risk management, revenue assurance and fraud. I've previously worked for the Uridu group, cable and wireless, T-Mobile and prior to that I was a management consultant working for Deloitte Consulting. I am a RAG committee member. Uh, I'm a freelance consultant and also an author on the comms risk website. So uh, there's no need to take any notes. These presentation slides are available. uh, They will be available on the RAG website and also they've been published today on the comms risk website. But if you want to know more about me, come and find me uh, either on LinkedIn or over on the comms risk website. So for the next hour, this will be the agenda. Uh, I'm going to start off talking about the risk management ecosystem. We're going to look at the impact on shareholder value when things go wrong. I'm then going to talk about the survey methodology, how we devise the questionnaire, and then we're going to have some findings. I've got some conclusions to make, and then I'm going to invite a Pereguine chard to come on the stage and we're going to have a one to one session <clears throat> so this is pretty much this is the risk management ecosystem and if you imagine this blue triangle kind of being representative of an organization at the bottom you have what we term the risk silos and in these risk silos these are teams could be individuals and they're working on risk management and they're working in isolation Sometimes you do get independent, interdependencies between teams, but often they're working on their own. And these are teams like revenue assurance, fraud, IT security, cyber security, could be people working in operations, legal or regulatory. Sitting above those risk silos, uh, you have the enterprise risk management team. And their role is to work with the risk silos to help them identify, analyze, and assess risk management. And what they do is they just provide them with the three T's, which are tools, techniques, and templates to analyze risk. And what they then do is they then report that risk back into the enterprise risk management team. So the enterprise risk management team have a holistic view of all the risks across all the business and what they then tend to do is they slice and dice that data, and they kind of produce a report based on the priorities of the risks. Now what happens then is they then send that risk, register, up to the uh, executive committees, such as the CEO. Now what they're supposed to do and I use that in quote, "supposed to do," is they're supposed to use these uh, reports to help them manage the business, help them make better business decisions, uh, etc. Uh, and I'll talk about that a little bit later on. What happens is when they've, uh, that report then goes from the executives into the uh, Audit and Risk Committee and then above them you have the board. Ultimately the board are the ones who are responsible for enterprise risk management but what they then do is they then tend to delegate that down to a subcommittee which is the audit and risk committee so the board what they tend to do is they would sign off the policy they would set the risk appetite and they would sign off the annual risk report but a lot of the work is actually or the accountability work is done in the audit and risk committee occasionally what they will do they will invite members of the executive team to come to meet with them to give them updates on their risks so We have this, there's a flow of information which goes up the organisation through the term of risk reports. Coming down in the other direction is the goals and expectation setting. A lot of people ask me why is enterprise risk management important? And in a nutshell, it's pretty much there to preserve or to protect shareholder value. Now what you can see here. Is a graph which has been, uh, or it's a piece of analysis which has been done by Oxford University. And what they've done is they've looked at all the, comp- all the listed companies that have had a crisis. And what you can see is there's two very different responses uh, to a crisis in an organization. If you have an effective response where the management team, they come out, they say, Yes, I know what this problem is, I'm dealing with it, we're doing X, Y, and Z to fix this problem. The share price goes down, but it actually gives the investors confidence in that management team. And you will see the share price then goes back up. And if you look over a year or 250 trading days, what you can see is because the investors, because they've dealt with it effectively, investors are a lot more confident. And the actual share price itself can add on 7% of the value. If, on the other hand, you have an ineffective response, your share price goes down and it just stays down. And a good example here is BP back in uh, 2010. And then you had the Deepwater Horizon crisis and the share price just came down. And you know the CEO at the time, Tony Haywood, he was a man without a plan. It took them 89 days to cap the well. And if you look at their share price, it just went down and it stayed down. So that's an ineffective response. I just want to talk about some more uh, sp- specific examples to our industry. Uh, the first one here is TalkTalk. Talk. Back in 2015, they announced they'd been hacked and uh, they had 157,000 customers' data which was stolen. About 15,000 of those actually had bank account details with them. You can see the share price, bang, down by 15%. MTN Group, another one. They got a regulatory fine for $5 billion for not disconnecting SIM boxes. You can see there, look, down 20%. Vodafone, back in 2016, they got a a regulatory fine by Ofcom, uh, $4.6 for uh, breaches of consumer protection rules. And you can see there, down again, 15%. And more recently, had the BT Group. So BT made a public announcement. They had some financial accounting irregularities. And you can see there, 20% drop on the share price. Now, just to put that into context, 20% is £10 billion of your market capital wiped off. So we all talk about revenue assurance. A million here, a million there. Yeah, this is 10 million. So this is why it's really important. But just to go to show how sometimes markets can be irrational, the Italian operation actually only accounted for 1% of their group earnings. Okay, so this is the survey methodology. Uh, We wanted to... Conduct a, it was a confidential survey. It wasn't anonymous, but it was confidential. And it would enable the operators to benchmark themselves on enterprise risk management. We invited, uh, it was 12 operators. We invited, there was mobile, fixed line, broadband, quad play, and there were some large companies and some small companies. I'll show you who they were on the next slide. But that gave us a real good spread of companies that we could actually perform kind of some meaningful analysis on on the data. There was 29 questions. It took less than 30 minutes to complete the survey. So it wasn't too onerous. Now, how I I initially made this survey is I wanted to formalise it. So I actually went through the investor relations team. I rang them up, explained who I was, who I worked for, why you want to participate in this survey. I then emailed them the survey, so they had a copy of the survey, and I asked them to then put me in touch with a person who was responsible for enterprise risk management. If they couldn't do that, then I actually used my own personal networks within these organisations to get in, where I would send in the survey so they had a copy of it. Uh, The survey itself was actually completed over the telephone. Then I made sure they understood the question and then i understood the answer rather than them just typing it out and sending it to me i just wanted to make sure or add in an integrity check in the end there and these are the invited participants so you can see we've got a good mix we've got big operators smaller ones like quadplay mobile And now I'll talk about the questionnaire itself and how we actually devised this questionnaire. So essentially, there was kind of four key areas to the questionnaire. It was around people, process, technology and reporting. But then we had 29 questions. And how we actually came up with these 29 questions is what you can see here is part of the UK corporate governance code is it stipulates that if you're a listed company, you have to produce an annual corporate report. In that annual corporate report, there's usually a section on enterprise risk management. Now, I'm not too sure who writes these reports on risk management, but it's 10 to 20 pages, which tells you very, very little about what they do on risk management. It is just fluff. Now, I'm not picking on Sky, but this is actually Sky's. It could have been anybody's. It's just the first one that I actually just picked up and went through, but they are all pretty similar. I'll just show you an example. So they mention in there, they say, the group has a formal risk management framework. doesn't tell us what framework they use, but so our question was, do you adhere to any risk management standards? Another one, the group risk register is reported formally to the audit committee. Now, to be fair to Sky, they actually do, you can probably see it here at the bottom, they do actually say it goes twice a year. But trust me, on most of the others, they don't actually tell you how often it gets sent there. So what, another question was, how often? You know, Is this once a quarter? Is it once a year? Another example. They mention that they have an ongoing monitoring process which is mod- monitored, sorry, operated by the group risk team. They've mentioned the group risk team, but they don't actually tell us how many people are in this group risk team. Is it one person? Is it 10 people? You know, how many people is it? And this is my last, another example, it's my last one, but this is one of my bugbears. So what they've, what they've written here is the table below gives examples yeah, of how they mitigate their risk. Doesn't tell us they're actual ones. Yeah. And if, you, if anybody's actually read these reports, they actually list out, sometimes they list out the risks. And these lists, this list of risks, it's so genericized, so watered down, that when you actually pick up the actual risk register and the actual corporate report and you try to reconcile them, they don't reconcile. So, just to be clear on this question, I'm not asking for the actual risks. It's a binary question, it's yes or no. Do you actually, you know, do you report the company's risks? Are they the actual risks? (laughs) Now, Eric, I want to bring you in here. Uh, I think this brings on a, have we got a microphone for Eric? I think this brings on a, can you hear me? Now, yeah, I think this brings on a wider, you know, there's a wider interesting topic here is that there seems to be a lack of enterprise risk management disclosure you know, in these corporate annual reports. And I think it comes back down to the UK Corporate Governance Code, which used to be the Combined Code. I know you are very familiar with both those documents. Do you have a view as to why it's not being fleshed
0: out at all? Yes, I do. Um, The the wrong people writing at that... The people who write at that level, the people who say uh, write the FRC code, they work at a very high level. They don't have the science, the detail, the technical know-how to connect what they want at the very top level with the details of risks that are occurring in their increasingly complicated business. They are delegating away responsibility to things like security to experts in security and they're delegating away responsibility to business continuity and supply change management. And increasingly they're relying upon this delegated responsibility around the organisation because they find it hard to deal with at their level. And as a result you get this kind of very you know, the same words come up in all these reports but no one's really able to flesh out what good is supposed to look like in all these cases. And there's a a bridge, a gap between those of us who are doing the work at our level within the organisation, who are doing our job and we're busy, we're part of this puzzle, but there's, we're, some of these pieces are being assembled at a lower level. There's this aspiration at the top level and not many people are working at connecting the two and making sense of rationalising how you know, an individual piece of work in and this department plus that department plus that department reduces risk volatility And each individually may not be a significant reduction of risk volatility, but the combined impact reduces risk volatility for the business. So what happened is, um, and this is something I've talked to you about before, a great example of a missed opportunity, forgive me if I'm going on too long, but a great example of a missed opportunity is you have people like this who are just trying to kind of semi-political people, who are just trying to go, we're going to make it better and here's a rule. okay? And they don't know the detail. You've got people like us. We're working away. We're doing the best job that we can, but we don't always, we don't often get exposure to the board level. You know, quite often these people, the the highest they get to is the CFO or whatever, and they're not really getting the message beyond that. A great opportunity to bridge the gap between those higher levels and the lower levels was instead of just waiting for the, the worst crisis, which, as you as your graph showed, was the share price taking a whack because something really bad happened, was to look at how you can change your finance cost as a business by reducing your risks. And what I'm thinking of here is that credit rating agencies, if they deem your business to be more secure, they will give you a better rating. And if you're more volatile, you get a worse rating. And that rating will have an influence about how much it costs you to borrow money. So, for example, when I was in QTEL group, I calculated that a downgrade would add another $200 million to the annual costs of the business. So a missed opportunity was that the credit rating agencies didn't put pressure on non-financial businesses after 2008 to start saying, what enterprise risk management do you do? We're going to factor that into our calculation as to how... Reliable, you will be at paying your debts, at servicing your finance. And if you think about a two hundred million dollar cost, I mean, QTel Group is a big group, but it's representative of it puts you in a completely different ballpark for the value you add to the business. If they had asked that question, so Standard and Poor's back. So I'm really going on here, no, no, but no, Standard no. and Poor's back in two thousand eight said to the world that they would factor in enterprise risk management for non-financial corporations into their credit rating. So if you think about it, for Qtel, in that instance, if they had followed through, and they never followed through, it's a sad story, But if they had followed through, you would have had now a $200 million a year justification for doing better for risk management across the whole piece. Anything that reduces your volatility could reduce your financing costs, so it seems like it's got a good payoff. Vice versa, if you're going to get a downgrade, you don't, want to, you don't want to pay another $200 million a year financing your company. So again, a good reason to invest in basic improvements across the board. And then, yes, as a business, you have to work out how to do that, but now you've got more of a rationale for breaking it down. And the earnest would have been on the credit rating agencies to go, what questions are you going to ask? Because clearly these answers in these reports don't answer the questions they would have had. Sadly, they fluffed it. And we need to come back to that and to say, our argument is about not just profits. Profits is important, and profits influences share price and the rest. But actually, there's lots of ways you influence shareholder value, and things like finance cost and you know, impact on the share price. Of, like, sorry, I'm sorry, I've gone on for ages, but... That's great. There Thank you me. go. That's, that's it, in a nutshell. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Under socks. You have to report quantitatively
1: on business risk. How many corporations do that? 8%, even though it's a requirement, because collectively they've all got together and realized they can get away with boilerplate text. Adequately informing shareholders at the moment with the lack of education at top level into
0: the real business risks within the business is too much of a business risk. End of story. That's why we see this. Well, that's why I pointed out the credit rating agencies could have done us a favour. The, the credit rating agencies could have helped to fill a gap, a gap between the level of interest and skill of the average shareholder between what motivates your executives and what your board perceives to be necessary above the executives. So if they had started to tweak ratings as a result of how much you invest in this, but... Credit rating agencies, frankly, they didn't show themselves in glory in 2008. And then they didn't really improve afterwards, this is the sad truth. But they could have done us a favour. And I think, in the end, we have to solve the problem. You know, the, you know Sarbanes-Oxley was a great example of somebody having a solution... Without, having, without being able to join it to a problem, then another problem comes along fortuitously and their solution just gets plugged in and nobody had really worked out how to do any of the things anyway. So as you say, it all kind of reduces to just copy-paste the same words you've seen elsewhere and you know, didn't achieve it. I don't want to be rude to anybody who did Sarbanes-Oxley, but I saw so many bad examples of work that... you know, uh, Considering how many people around the room are going to spend a lot of time going saying, justifying the value they add, the panel we had before lunch. sarbanes Oxford was a great example of a lot of work that had no justifiable value to anybody at the end of it because it was just compliance and tick-box. Thank you. So,
1: the survey findings. But I am really disappointed to tell you that only two of the 12 operators She took part in the survey. So, I mean, what does that really tell us about the transparency of the ones which didn't participate? Now, during when I was doing my desktop-based research, going through these corporate annual reports, what I also found out is that not one of them actually has a chief risk officer. And this is for an industry which is worth 100 billion pounds, in excess of 100 billion pounds. Now, even more shockingly, when I actually rang up and spoke to the investor relations team to say, can you put me in touch with a person responsible for enterprise risk management? The majority of them didn't even know who that person was. From the ones who did respond, so now I'm going to talk about the ones, the two that did, what I actually found is the person who was responsible for the day-to-day activities was actually three levels below the CEO. And in both, they are both in the internal audit team. Even more disappointing is that I've not even done an external benchmarking survey against the RIMS maturity model. You know, to be fair, one was assessed by the BSI and the other one has an internal maturity model they look at. However, if you're going to do this properly, you need to start using. The proper tools out there, which is the RIMS maturity model. Not all bad news. Uh, they were all of the team members within these two companies. They were actually members of the Institute of Risk Management, so it shows there's some kind of degree of professionalism in there. So, in summary, it's, I can't make a you know a, a summarization across the UK's. UK industry with only two, two survey respondees. But what I do know is that for the 10 who didn't respond, I know from my internal knowledge of those organisations, for the two that did, they are leading the way on enterprise risk management. So for the 10 which didn't, they're playing catch up and they're behind this summary here for the two. So for the two, I would say it's very embryonic, very early stage. How do I know that? but well, it's part of internal audit. It's not, there's nothing wrong with being part of internal audit. In fact, enterprise risk management is usually born in internal audit. Somebody has a light bulb moment. Somebody says, you know, we're dealing with risk. We do risk-based auditing. You know, why, we don't have anybody doing risk management. Let's start doing the process. But then as the process matures, somebody then has another light bulb moment to say, well, actually, it's a conflict of interest. You know, Or it shouldn't actually be a compliance activity, it should be more of the management's activity it should be embedded at that level and therefore it then gets moved over. It's just been dumped down three, level, three levels below the CEO. I mean it's, how can you have a meaningful conversation with a C-level executive if you're three levels below him? And it was quite clear that it's not integrated or used by top management. So when I said to the people who completed the survey, what happens to this report when it goes to the executives? What do they do with this report? They said, both said, well, they review and comment on the report. Yeah, again, it's a typical audit process where you get to review and comment on something. You know, what I'd expect to see is, yeah, well, they get the report, they sit down, they have a business meeting, and they use it to help them steer and manage the business to make better business decisions. And that's not happening. So, you know, I put down probably in brackets here, it's probably viewed as corporate governance box ticking. It's just an exercise, keep the regulators happy. You know, we have to produce this annual report, let's put something in there. But from my own personal experience, I've spent seven years working out in the Middle East. I think we have a lot to learn from the operators out there. Because if you look at the people who are responsible for enterprise risk management in all the big telco groups, Aridu Group, Etisalat, STC, Zane Group, the person responsible reports directly to the group CEO. In fact, if you go to Zane Group, Zane Group actually has a chief risk officer. I think we have a lot to learn. Okay. So you all recognise the ecosystem. Okay. Now we are in the UK and we have you know we are compliance central. We have the FRC, the FCA, we have the UK corporate governance code, you know, there's codes of business ethics. So I know that the boards and the audit and risk committees, they understand their responsibilities on enterprise risk management. I also know, having spent 20 years working in risk silos, working with enterprise risk management teams, they're doing fantastic jobs as well. So the problem's not there. The problem is at the executive level. They're just not seeing the value of enterprise risk management. Now, this is uh, Norman Marks. If you haven't heard of Norman Marks, he is, I guess, a thought leader of enterprise risk management. Now, I'll read this out. It says, our business leaders, they're not idiots. If they have not invested in risk management, there's a reason. They see it as a compliance activity. Yeah? That costs time and money, checks the box for the board and the regulators, but doesn't help them to be successful. So it's not just in telcos we have this problem. We've also got this problem in other industries as well. But this is my last slide. I don't want to end on a down note. I want to end actually on a positive note because there's some piece of research which has been done here which will kind of, it's the missing link in my view. So there's a peer reviewed research journal uh, undertaken by two authors, uh, Mark Farrell and Ronan Gallagher. And what they did is they took all the data from all the companies that had done the RIMS maturity model. And what they found, they found that the ones which scored very high on the RIMS maturity model, that their valuation of their company was actually 25% higher. There is a link to this presentation. If anybody is working in enterprise risk management and you feel you're not getting the buy-in from the executives, if you go and talk to an executive and say, I can help you make better business decisions, they're not going to buy into that. They want to see the value. And if you then start talking about, I can add on 25% to the share price, if we actually start embedding enterprise risk management properly in our organisation, then we're going to deliver a lot more value. Thank you so
0: much. That was Lee Scargill talking at the Risk and Assurance Group's 2017 London Conference. It's no secret that I agree with Lee's point of view. Professionals in our line of work complain about underinvestment. But we address our complaints at executives who may have the least incentive to respond. Shareholders get hurt most when share prices tumble due to poor risk management. Lee's results confirm that there is currently a disconnect between the work done inside the telco to manage risks and what shareholders are told about the way telcos manage their risks. If we could align the internal and external messages, then we would also create a fresh incentive for investment in risk management. Lee's survey was of UK telcos only, but I believe he would get similar findings anywhere. We shall have to see. Lee intends to repeat his survey in other countries. As Lee pointed out, there is also plenty of research which shows share prices are generally healthier when businesses put a higher priority on managing risks. But that's it for today's show. You've been listening to the Comms Risk Podcast and I am your host, Eric Priestcounts, the editor of Comms Risk. You can download this episode and all the episodes of the Comms Risk Podcast from Comsrisk.com. You can also subscribe to the Comms Risk podcast for free on the iTunes store. For more news and views about communications risk and assurance, always remember to visit commsrisk.com. I'm grateful to Lee Scargill and to the Risk and Assurance Group for permission to use their recording on today's episode. Thanks for listening.